0: I wanted to introduce to you our final speaker of the program, last but certainly not least. We are delighted to welcome Deputy Director of the CFPB, uh, Brian Johnson. I had the good fortune of working with him um, briefly when he first started on House Financial Services way back in the day. Um, And he was known then as a very thoughtful scholar, a very hard worker, and a very uh, dedicated A public servant to principled policy that was evidence based. So I'm delighted that he's here with us today to share a little bit about the work that the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau has been doing lately. So please join me in welcoming Brian Johnson.
1: Thank you, Lydia, for the introduction. Um, Hello, everybody. Director Craninger sends her regards. Uh, Unfortunately, she's on travel on Bureau of Business today and couldn't attend herself. Um, She sends her regrets. She did send me a second fiddle, uh, so apologies in advance uh, for that, but as I bumble through my remarks this afternoon, I do take uh, solace in a couple things. First, um, I've heard that you all have had a fantastic summit already today. Uh, And second, uh, you in the audience already have full bellies, so you can take solace in that. Thanks to Cato for the invitation to be here today. I understand the summit is the first event as part of Cato's new initiative on financial inclusion. Cato has been recognized for decades as a vanguard of the Liberty Movement, and I'm grateful to your scholars, especially Todd and Diego, for tackling this vital issue. We at the Bureau have much to learn from you, and I look forward to a continued dialogue about your innovative policy proposals to expand access to financial services and bolster consumer protections. My remarks today are focused on the relationship between financial inclusion and consumer protection. Before I begin, though, I wanna dispense with one minor formality, which our attorneys say I have to repeat each time I speak. Uh, While I'm here today as a representative of the Bureau, my remarks do not constitute legal interpretation, guidance or advice of the Bureau and any personal opinions or views expressed are my own and may not represent the official views uh, or position of the CFPB in all cases or in connection with all specific matters. That is a mouthful. Um, So let's start with uh, basic definitions. The phrases financial inclusion and consumer protection can mean different things to different people in different contexts. So I think we need to clarify a little bit. For purposes of my discussion here today, financial inclusion is defined as the availability and equality of opportunities to access financial services. Because consumers are best off if they choose the financial services which they believe are best for them. This definition of financial inclusion implies the absence of conditions which impede the ability of consumers to make such choices. Many conditions, of course, can thwart the ability of consumers to make these choices. Most clearly, if providers of financial services prohibit or limit consumer product choices due to unlawful discrimination, such as based on race, it undermines financial inclusion. Consumers can also be excluded from financial services for a variety of other reasons. Some consumers, for example, may live too far from a brick and mortar bank or other financial service provider to purchase the services they want. Other consumers may have no credit file or thin credit file at consumer reporting agencies, which may preclude them from obtaining loans they otherwise would receive. Now, I think the empirical research is clear, and we would all agree, that financial inclusion is a positive thing for consumers. It facilitates income mobility, wealth building, and consumer welfare. So the task before us today at today's summit is to consider how best we can collectively promote financial inclusion in light of rapid technological changes. One of the most obvious examples of such change is the near ubiquity of internet access and cell phones. According to Pew Research, for instance, 77% of U.S. adults now own smartphones, including two-thirds of adults earning less than $30,000 a year. Instant connectivity breaks down geographical divides and is a driver of a vibrant new mobile banking and fintech ecosystem. Another example of change that holds promise is the ability of financial services providers to employ machine learning or AI to better determine credit worthiness, streamline the loan process, and generally improve the customer experience for the borrower. Like all new technology, innovations can can present potential risks but expanding financial choice and opportunity, coupled with increased market competition, undoubtedly benefits consumers and should be encouraged. Indeed, as William Nordhaus famously found that on average consumers capture roughly 96% of the social returns from technological advances. And I realize it's fashionable these days to refer to innovation as a new and distinct concept, but really innovation has has been and always will be the main catalyst of the market system Change and innovation are what drive market activity. Absent barriers to entry, firms that fail to satisfy constantly changing consumer preferences typically lose customers to competitors, and if they lose too many customers, they fail. Entrepreneurs are driven by market opportunities to anticipate and satisfy consumer demands. It is therefore important to note that the free market system itself is the greatest, most powerful force on earth for improving the financial lives of our citizens. Simply put, if one cares about the poor and the financially vulnerable among us, one ought to be a champion for the free enterprise system. Now, if you think I'm overselling the power of free and competitive markets to improve all of our lives, consider for a moment a couple of facts. First, Arthur Brooks pointed out one of the most remarkable achievements in human history. Due to free enterprise between 1970 and 2006, the proportion of the world's population living on less than a dollar a day decreased by 80%. Let's think about that. In a little more than three and a half decades, the proportion of people across the globe living in extreme poverty decreased by 80%. Millions of souls were lifted out of grinding deprivation. There's simply no precedent for the improvement of human life on this vast scale in such a short amount of time. Or consider even a longer time horizon. Two centuries ago, the average world income was $3 a day in today's money. It's now $33 a day. And in America, it's $130 a day. The economist Diedrom Klosky calls this the great enrichment. It was driven by what she calls the liberation of ordinary people to pursue their dreams of economic betterment. Indeed, billions of people have been lifted out of poverty because of market activity. As Milton Friedman once said, there's never been a more effective machine for eliminating poverty than the free market system. Now, if we agree that financial inclusion benefits consumers and that the single biggest driver of financial inclusion is economic growth facilitated by free markets, it stands to reason that our legal and regulatory framework should promote free enterprise. This consideration is particularly important for the CFPB. The Bureau was created to protect consumers by ensuring, among other things, that consumer financial markets operate transparently and efficiently to facilitate access and innovation. This brings me to the second phrase requiring definition, consumer protection. People use this malleable phrase in different senses, and these differences create confusion, particularly when discussing policy proposals. At worst, the phrase is used to mean roughly all of the policies with which I personally agree. I think we can be a bit more objective and precise. In general, there are three distinct approaches to consumer protection. The first is requiring disclosures by businesses that inform consumers about their products and services. A key feature of disclosure-based regulation, when properly conceived, is that it reinforces market processes by ensuring consumers have access to truthful and understandable information. These types of disclosures allow consumers to more efficiently compare similarly situated products among different sellers and decide which product they are willing and able to purchase. In other words, The disclosed information promotes consumer choice, and disclosure-based regulation facilitates financial inclusion because consumers who understand financial products are more likely to use them and thereby participate in our financial system. The second approach to consumer protection is combating unlawful acts and practices by market participants, including and especially by those that are deceptive or discriminatory. Federal and state consumer protection laws have typically focused on improving consumer welfare are directed at prohibiting the dissemination of information that is misleading or can create a likelihood of confusion. As former FTC Commissioner Joshua Wright put it, the consumer welfare focus reinforces market principles because consumers revealed preferences best demonstrate consumer desires, and consumer welfare is increased when consumers are better able to satisfy their desires through transparent and accurate transactions. Like the disclosure approach to consumer protection, the second approach is also both pro-consumer and pro-market, It facilitates financial inclusion by prohibiting market conduct intended to defeat consumer understanding or through unlawful discrimination to exclude consumers from participating altogether. The third approach to consumer protection is what I call product restriction or design. This approach restricts the prices, terms, and products that consumers can choose. And this approach is not market reinforcing. It is market replacing because it substitutes the government's preferences for those of the consumer. And when government intervenes not to regulate market behavior, but to restrict product features, consumers usually lose. At least some consumers won't be able to obtain the products and services they understand and want, meaning they will have to look instead for a next best alternative if they even know what to look for. By definition, they're made worse off by not obtaining the product they would have chosen in the absence of government restrictions. Taken together, this approach denies consumers the choice to which they should be entitled, representing a conscious policy of financial exclusion. There's significant risk to consumers in empowering one individual or agency to decide whether some consumers can't be trusted to have certain products or products with certain features and that markets or products should be remade in that individual's or agency's satisfaction. If this anti-consumer product design approach were adopted by a future CFPB director, for example, he or she could pressure companies to alter their product offerings through consent orders, or the director could use the confidential supervisory process to do the same. Or it could even issue draconian rules that create such ominous legal risk that financial service services providers won't offer products or product features which differ one iota from director design rules. Prior remarks, I offered a rule of thumb to guard against such abuses, which was that in the exercise of its authorities, the Bureau should be guided by a presumption in favor of consumer choice. However, the best immediate safeguard for consumers, given the Bureau's current authorities and structure, is the character and motivation of the director, his or herself. In this regard, I believe we're fortunate for Director Cranninger's open-minded and disciplined leadership. In the first six months of her tenure, She embarked upon a listening tour that included visits to our regional offices around the country, where she heard from a great variety of Bureau stakeholders, including service members, consumer advocates, civil rights leaders, legal aid attorneys, bank and credit union officers, FinTech providers, and state and federal government officials. Following this tour, she articulated a positive vision for the Bureau, focused on preventing harm to consumers and using the tools that Congress gave us to fulfill that vision. This includes enforcing the law and using our supervisory process to promote a culture of compliance. Of course, among these laws are the fair lending disclosure and other laws Congress designed to reinforce the market and promote financial inclusion. This also includes conducting financial education programs to ensure consumers receive timely and understandable information to make responsible decisions about financial transactions. For example, the Bureau recently launched its Start Small, Save Up initiative to help consumers build an emergency savings cushion and develop a savings habit. These efforts too are market reinforcing and promote financial inclusion. Another tool the director identified is the use of rulemaking and guidance where appropriate to articulate clear rules of the road for regulated entities. Reducing regulatory uncertainty and identifying and addressing undue regulatory burden helps promote market efficiency and competition which can, in turn, help facilitate financial inclusion. An example of this approach, as an example of this approach, the bureau recently proposed rules to implement the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act by clarifying, among among other things, the application of the requirements of that law to new communication technologies. A final tool the Director has identified is the use of innovation policies to expand financial choice and access to financial services by reducing regulatory uncertainty and incentivizing new ideas and products. On that score, the CFPB has established a new Office of Innovation and hired an assistant director to lead it, who, prior to joining the Bureau, had successfully led efforts to establish the nation's first state FinTech Sandbox. Since its creation, the Office of Innovation has been busy. Under its guidance, the Bureau joined the Global Financial Innovation Network, or GFIN, an international consultative body wherein we can exchange ideas and learn best practices for promoting innovation from other government agencies with similar missions throughout the globe. The office has also proposed three policies to help facilitate innovation. For example, we've proposed a revised no action letter policy called a NOW. The program can potentially serve a variety of purposes towards improving innovation. For instance, we can clearly signal enforcement priorities at the bureau allowing the market to offer products in areas where there are anticipated consumer benefits. And while the NOW policy can be beneficial for all types of firms, it would be especially important for emerging fintech companies. And as contemplated in our proposal, the NOW policy would have built into it a number of consumer safeguards to help ensure that we are promoting innovation that benefits consumers both initially and over time. The Bureau's proposed CFPB product sandbox is another tool the Office of Innovation has proposed to expand financial inclusion. Sandboxes have broad support at home and internationally, and rightfully so. They can serve to facilitate innovation in highly regulated commercial spaces, and they can provide the Bureau with a front row seat at early stages of product development, increasing the Bureau's institutional knowledge relating to cutting-edge financial technology, Above all, they can help regulated entities through the uncertainties posed by the application of regulations to products or product features that did not exist or or weren't even imagined when those regulations were written. And finally, the Bureau has proposed a revised version of its trial disclosure policy that is designed to encourage new and bold ideas related to improving disclosures and ultimately improving consumer understanding of financial products. The comment period on each of these policies has closed we're reviewing comments and working to finalize and publish the policies. In closing, if some of the definitional distinctions I've drawn today, financial inclusion versus financial exclusion, consumer choice-based consumer protection versus product restriction or design, and market reinforcing actions versus market replacing actions seem vaguely familiar, it's because they are new aspects of the age-old debate about liberty and security. At stake in the outcome of this debate is the very notion of consumer sovereignty. Some favor increased government authority at the expense of personal autonomy and financial liberty, not me. The fundamental question is this, who do we want making financial decisions for ourselves and for our children? Over a half century ago, President Reagan observed that a government can't control the economy without controlling people. So we have come to a time for choosing. Either we accept the responsibility for our own destiny where we abandon the American Revolution and confess that an intellectual elite in a far distant capital can plan our lives for us better than we can plan them ourselves. 55 years later, we still have to make this fundamental choice. We must be vigilant, guarding against every effort to subvert the idea of consumer protection by equating it with giving license to government actors to supplant consumer preferences with their own. And we must be mindful that the free market is the greatest engine for economic mobility and financial inclusion. Quite simply, the single best policy to protect American consumers and to foster financial inclusion is to ensure that consumers have the ability to make their own choices in free markets. Thanks for your time. Happy to answer some questions.
0: Um, The director has very nicely, deputy director, has very nicely agreed to answer a few questions. Is this on? Hello, can you hear me? So I'm front of a speaker, that's why. Um, so, um, but I'm gonna help moderate. So if you would raise your hand, and we'll try to call on two of you at a time like we did in the auditorium. Uh, the gentleman over there. And please wait for the microphone. Please identify yourself. Um.
2: Uh, Mark Tenney, Mathematical Finance Company. Um, a lot of these efforts to like, broaden finance to ordinary people are, they're app-oriented or transaction-oriented. Um, we have this huge body of know-how in economic and financial theory, consumer choice, utility functions, and mathematical methods. and The consumer, uh, whenever it comes down to we're going to help ordinary people, all that's forgotten. It's like we're not going to use any of that or try to translate it to a, v- to a way that they can take access to it. Do you see a possibility that your group could try to take financial and economic theory and try to get it down to consumers, or or encourage um, financial institutions to do that?
1: Um, yes, and that's actually part of our mission. So we have an entire division of uh, consumer education, and they work uh, very hard to try and do exactly what you're trying to uh, what you're suggesting, which is take very complicated issues um, and package them in a way that we can uh, disseminate either to financial empowerment coaches or directly to consumers, and there are a number of programs that seek to do that. It's always a challenge and we're always seeking ways to do that in a better way and actually use data and feedback ourselves to understand uh, where uh, we're having success and where we're kind of penetrating consumer understanding. So um, certainly a a continued challenge um, and our Uh, financial educators work with our economists um, uh, both to understand where there are informational breakdowns in markets to identify opportunities to better inform consumers and then on the back end to try and understand what the outcomes are and whether uh, the information that we're trying to disseminate is actually internalized and and turned into uh, into habits that benefit consumers.
0: Any other questions? um we'll take um well i I did say i had promised him press can't ask questions during the but i wonder if you get a pass because you moderated. i think you do colin (laughs) Uh, microphone danny please thank you
1: hey colin hey um hey brian um uh, chair mcwaters uh or mcwilliams excuse me um Mentioned this morning that uh, she's looking to coordinate on a um, some sort of small dollar lending guidance. Uh, to what extent are you working with the FDIC and, and some of the other regulators on how, to, uh, how you all can um, maybe give banks or other financial institutions more of a, or primarily banks I would say, uh, uh, more of a lane to run in in terms of um, small dollar lending? It's an interesting question because we're an FDIC board member. So it's, you know, we're kind of negotiating with ourselves uh, on that one. Um, you know, as, as part of that process, uh, you know, the director will be actively involved in whatever an FDIC board uh, decision would be on that. I understand that FDIC put out an RFI to consider ways to um, encourage uh, greater market entry in the small dollar space. I understand OCC is also um, taken action, and um, we of course have uh, in, a, in a different uh, in a different sense as well. So um, look, greater competition in any space is usually a win for consumers. So to the extent that we can encourage more folks to be innovating products um, that meet the needs of particular consumers who, for instance, lack Four hundred dollars uh, in liquid savings to cover a financial emergency. I think that's I think that's a good thing for consumers. So something we're actively um, looking at and uh, uh, will be involved in as FDIC uh, considers its options moving forward. Do
0: you have a time frame? No, no time frame. Um, uh, Rob Morgan here. Danny uh, again. <laughs>
1: Brian, thanks for your comments. Uh, Rob Morgan with the ABA. Um, appreciate the work that you've done on innovation and trying to drive drive some of those programs. We've seen a couple of other regulators start to follow suit. Uh, how do you envision the CFPB working with some of those other regulators and developing uh, the sandbox programs going forward? Um, so my ambition and hope is that this is not a patchwork process that develops uh, individually across you know state levels and with our, our partners. Um, at the federal level, although it's necessary for everybody, I think, to be uh, looking into opportunities here. I think the Bureau is uniquely situated because we're not a chartering institution, so some of the federal state uh, push and pull in terms of who should be in charge of of, uh, a charter-based kind of model um, is not of concern to us. We want to work with CSBS and and, uh, uh, state AGs and everybody else as a partner um, with state efforts. Uh, and are actively you know, trying to work with states who are considering sandbox models or just want to understand what's going on at the federal level. Um, we can also work, uh, I think, uniquely with our federal partners um, and tend to do so. And even uh, to uh, the point I made in my remarks, we're now um, at an international level, uh, a member of GFIN and part of that coordinating body. And so working with uh, international regulators like the FCA and the United Kingdom Singapore, and some of the other countries that are, frankly, several years ahead of the U.S. in terms of uh, developing policies that help better promote uh, innovation, particularly in the financial services space. So there's a lot of work to do. Um, We hope that uh, we can remain positioned as somebody who's willing to work with all partners uh, at all levels to try and promote these policies.
0: Um, uh, uh, Jotaika. Hi, thank you for your comments. take Eady with LENDUP. Um, earlier um, today there was a very robust conversation on the use of wider alternative data um, to help drive greater financial inclusion. I know uh, that the CFPB uh, had put out a RFI um, as it relates to um, the use of alternative data. Yeah. Is there um, a timeline or expectation when the Bureau will uh, uh, respond or put out um, a report or any guidance as it relates to the use of alternative data?
1: Don't have a timeline for you, but I can tell you that the work is ongoing. So you know, one thing that's core to our mission that we're very um, interested in is understanding where the risk might lie in the use of alternative data from a fair lending perspective. And so um, we see uh, great value in being able to use and encourage the use of alternative data, and we also have identified risk. And so we wanna make sure that we're being deliberative about what we're saying so that we aren't uh, unduly uh, increasing risk uh, from a fair lending perspective. But I am interested in uh, working with uh, our other federal partners as well um, and seeing what sort of uh, information um, that would be appropriate could be put out that, that could provide guidance in that area.
0: Time for a couple more questions. See Todd here.
1: feels like it's going to be a ringer question. <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: Well, I always get called on last because uh, since i work worked at Cato, but <laughs> fortunately there's time. Um, one of the things that sh- strikes me is that uh, a, a, that in general, of course, uh, one of the core ideas of a free enterprise system and uh, a free system is the rule of law. Um, And it strikes me that that's obviously important in financial services generally to be able to make a a loan and know it's going to be enforced and what the rules are. But it strikes me that with respect to innovation, it's particularly important, right? Uh, uh, Particularly important to have clear um, yard markers and guidelines and everything else uh, so that you kind of know where the, the, the lanes, you know, where the lines lie. And you talked a little bit about what um, the Office of Innovation is doing on that, but I just, thought more g- generally, what are your observations on the, the rule of law and um, sort of how that influences what uh, uh, what you guys are doing?
1: Well, obviously it's something we want to promote strongly. Um, the is in a unique situation because it's uh, one of the newest agencies out there, um, very young in its history, and was assigned uh, tremendous responsibility, which is administering 18 enumerated statutes, plus some ag- organic authorities in Title 10, which includes uh, UDAP, uh, so-called UDAP, Unfair, Abusive, and, and um, Deceptive Acts and Practices. And so there is, I think, work to do to provide uh, greater um, certainty to the market for the benefit of consumers and and providers alike, about how the bureau as an agency uh, thinks about the law, um, what guidance we can share that would um, settle expectations, and I view that as beneficial not just to consumers in the marketplace but to the agency itself. So we've been charged with going after bad actors. To the extent that we can provide guidance uh, ex ante so that people can conform their behavior to the requirements of the law, that means that we can focus our limited resources I'd say finite resources rather than limited resources, uh, on, on going after those who, who really just don't have uh, any interest in obeying the law. So that's one. The second is um, we have announced a series of policy symposia, um, and the first one, which I know you're familiar with, is exploring uh, the concept of an abusive actor practice. It was a new concept introduced in Dodd-Frank, and one that frankly um, has... Uh, has created a lot of concern about exactly what that is because there is language in the statutory definition um, which is can be used uh, subjectively. And so the purpose of this symposium is to uh, bring together um, the best experts we can find from the outside who have wrestled with this uh, matter from a, a legal and regulatory perspective or from an academic perspective. And we hope that the, the good conversation we can have among those panelists will help inform our judgment and understanding, and frankly, the public's judgment and understanding of uh, the definition of, 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 of abusiveness, um, and that that can, uh, uh, will be salutary uh, moving forward in, in terms of other actions the Bureau might take. So we're um, continually trying to find ways to provide more certainty <laughs> and, and guidance to the marketplace um, uh, for the purpose, among others, of, of supporting the rule of law.
0: Great. Thank you so much, Brian.
1: Thank you very much.